Welcome back to the Physio Podcast. I'm your host, Anisha Bailey, and today we will be finishing up the cardiac cycle and talking about blood. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you that I have gotten my information for this podcast from Myers Lectures titled Bio3200 MLO8 and Bio3200 MLO9, and from Silverthorne's Human Physiology. Today we will be starting with an overview of the cardiac cycle. First, we are going to talk about the Wiggers diagram. The way I like to view this diagram is in phases because it helps me connect different aspects of the chart to each other. As we see on slide 12 of MLO8, this diagram has many parts that make a whole. First, the atria will be contracting or in systole. This means that blood flows out of the atria and into the ventricle through the AV valve, and this is also the point in which we see the P wave in our electrocardiogram recording. This means that the volume of blood in the ventricle is increasing at this point and the pressure is very close to what it is like in the atrium. Blood moves from high pressure areas to low pressure areas, which is why blood flows from the atria into the ventricle, the low pressure area. So as soon as the pressure in the ventricle becomes higher than the pressure in the atrium, the AV valve closes shut. This is our first heart sound. Next, we have isovolumic contraction, which is almost funny because the ventral is not connecting at, contracting at this point. In this stage, pressure builds while both the AV and semilunar valves, also called the aortic valve, are closed, meaning that volume stays constant. This is also the point at which we see the QRS complex in our ECG. As soon as pressure in the ventricle surpasses that in the aorta, the aortic valve opens and ventricular systole can occur, meaning that blood flows out into the aorta, volume decreases in the ventricle, and pressure in both the aorta and ventricle taper off. Once pressure in the aorta passes that in the ventricle, the aortic valve closes. This is our second heart sound. The next stage is the early ventricular diastole, where pressure in the ventricle decreases rapidly, volume stays constant, and our muscles are relaxed, demonstrated by the T wave of the ECG. Then, the cycle repeats. Let's break this down with a question that I believe is integral in understanding this diagram. How does blood flow when the aortic valve opens, and why? Got an answer? Well, the aortic valve is between the ventricle and aorta. This valve only opens once pressure in the ventricle passes that in the aorta. This is because we always want to remember that blood moves from high pressure to low pressure areas. For our next topic related to the cardiac cycle, let's describe changes in heart rate. Some important differences between the parasympathetic and sympathetic pathways include their ligands, receptors, ion permeabilities, and lengths. The first difference I wanted to start with is the fact that the sympathetic uses beta-1 receptors with norepinephrine and epinephrine, while the parasympathetic uses muscarinic receptors with acetylcholine. Next, activation from the sympathetic causes an increase in cyclic AMP, which causes an overall increase in the heart rate because we are increasing calcium in our cells, and calcium helps regulate the binding of myosin and actin. Parasympathetic, on the other hand, decreases the amount of calcium in our cells, slowing the heart rate. Break it down time. Does an increase in cyclic AMP mean that the sympathetic was activated or that the parasympathetic was activated? Exactly, it's sympathetic. Next, I want to talk about a concept called hyperemia. There are two types. Active hyperemia involves an increase in metabolism or activity of a tissue, but reactive hyperemia is actually the decreased blood flow to a tissue. These may not seem very related, but both of these processes conclude with a decrease in resistance and therefore an increase in blood flow. A tissue that is very active needs more blood and nutrients, so the blood must get to it easily. 
a tissue that has vessels that are blocked is unable to get nutrients due to the blood being halted, so it would need the occlusion to be removed and thus more blood would be sent here to bring back the vessels to normal capabilities. For our last topic related to the cardiac cycle, we will be discussing capillary exchange. The capillaries are where blood is moving the slowest, which is helpful for our body as we need as much time as possible to absorb and filter the blood properly. More filtration occurs in the capillaries rather than absorption, which is why some of the excess fluid is taken up into the lymphatic system. When hydrostatic pressure is greater than osmotic pressure, we filter out. When the reverse is true, we take up nutrients. Here's a quick break it down. If hydrostatic pressure is equal to osmotic pressure, will we filter or absorb? Well, if we have an equal and constant pressure, we will not see any net change. Now, let us move on to blood pressure regulation. An increase in blood pressure would result in our bodies wanting to decrease blood pressure to get back to homeostasis. To decrease blood pressure, parasympathetic pathways would be more activated, resulting in the SA node decreasing the heart rate. This action in conjunction with a decrease in sympathetic activation causing the force of contraction to decrease, thus causes a decrease in cardiac output. The smooth muscle of the atrials will dilate, causing a decrease in resistance, so blood flow will be easier and with less pressure because the volume is increased. Less resistance and a decrease in output causes blood pressure to decrease. If we had the opposite occur when blood pressure is decreased, we would increase blood pressure by ultimately increasing cardiac output and resistance. This can be done by activating the sympathetic, causing the diameter of the blood vessels to constrict and causing an increase in norepinephrine. Heart rate would also increase due to this. To help you out, I imagine that the blood vessel is almost like a cave. If a person is standing in a very small cave, they will be pushing and moving, trying to find a comfortable position, like how blood has a higher pressure when the vessel is constricted. How about we switch gears only slightly to talk about coagulation and how to dissolve blood clots. First, I want to mention a few differences I noticed between the plasma and the cellular components of blood. The first is that the plasma is where a lot of materials can be found. This is interesting because I had assumed the RBCs contain many of these components, like water, ions, and organic molecules. But as Dr. Meyer mentions later in the lecture, the RBCs are non-nucleated. This helps RBCs pack more of what they need, like hemoglobin, and the extra things are around them in the plasma. Hemoglobin is a carrier of oxygen in our blood to tissues from the lungs. For this reason, it must be able to bind and unbind oxygen in order to be an efficient carrier molecule. As depicted in the image on slide 9 of ML09, it is composed of four subunits, each with its own heme group, meaning one hemoglobin can bind to four oxygens. When I think about clot formation, I imagine it as almost a physical thing breaking down, like a castle being invaded. If invaders enter through the wall, the castle and kingdom are exposed, thus causing signaling to the guards to aggregate at the weakest or most vulnerable site. This is like our platelets blinding to exposed sites and causing more guards to come, creating a shield, or in terms of physiology, the platelet plug, which is reinforced by fibrin. The signaling also causes blood flow to stop or slow down, which is like the guards making a tactical plan of how to combat the intruders. Thrombin activates plasmin in order to dissolve the fibrin into fragments, 
destroying the meshwork and dissolving the clots while our tissue repairs. We send for backup or reinforcements, and once the wall is back up, our guards are dismissed to their normal positions. Now, let's talk about anemia for a quick minute. A cause of anemia is not properly making hemoglobin or red blood cells. If hemoglobin is not made correctly, then it cannot fulfill its job of binding to oxygen in the lungs and releasing it to the tissues, which would mean our red blood cells would not be working properly. If our red blood cells are not made properly, we will have inadequate amounts of good blood reaching each of our organs, causing anemia. For our last topic of the day, I want to talk about blood types. Simply put, if you have type A blood, then you have type A antigens and type B antibodies. If you have type B blood, you have type B antigens and type A antibodies. If you have type AB blood, you have both kinds of antigens and neither of the antibodies. Can you break this down and guess what type of O blood would be? Yes! Someone with type O blood has neither type of antigen, but both types of antibodies. To leave you for today, I have one last question. If someone with type A blood was given type B plasma, what would happen? Would everything be normal, or would this potentially harm the person? This would not be good because type B plasma contains A antibodies. These A antibodies could attack the type A blood because of the A antigens on the patient's blood cells. This would cause a severe immune response. Well, that's all for now. Thank you for tuning in, and remember that I obtained my information for this podcast from Myers Lecturers Bio3200MLO8 and Bio3200MLO9 and Silverthorne's Human Physiology. Bye now!